Uh, first week, we looked at the first half of what's often called the Lord's Prayer. This week, we're gonna be looking at the second half of that. But before we dive into that, I wanna ask a question maybe that helps get you thinking, what are some marks of a healthy relationship? What are some marks of a healthy relationship? For those of us that get nervous about answering questions in big groups, don't worry, it's a rhetorical question, so no pressure on you. Though if you want to share some gem of insight, you can turn to your neighbor and whisper it in their ear. But there are certain marks of a healthy relationship. One, that like uh, there's honesty, uh, that there's a sense of if they say they're gonna show up, they actually show up. I've been guilty of that sometimes. Sometimes I forget. Anybody ever forget? Anybody ever forget to show up sometimes? I had to apologize to somebody recently because I forgot to call them back. Oh man. But there are marks of these healthy relationships. Maybe if you're not batting a thousand, there's at least a history of going in the right direction, right? There's a respect for the person's needs, a respect for boundaries. One of the things that I think is a mark of a healthy relationship, though, that we might not think of at the, the, at the very first thing is, can you give voice to your needs? Can you tell that person what you need? The idea of sharing your needs is difficult on two ends. One, because sometimes the relationship that you're in with another person isn't a safe space to share that need. And so you might be aware of that need, but you might not want to share that need because sharing that need might not be received well if, you know, uh, dependent on, 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 on what you need and, and who that person is. Sometimes we're so enmeshed and so wrapped up in a, in a relationship that we can't separate ourselves from that person. And so like we, we know we have certain needs, but like, is that my needs or is that their needs? And this is psychologically, this is called enmeshment or sometimes codependence where we're, we're fused with another person and we are not really aware what we uniquely need as an individual person. I think this is beautiful in the Lord's Prayer because the second half of the Lord's Prayer is all about Jesus giving permission to, uh, to pray our needs. Well, think about this. If a mark of a healthy relationship is being able to give voice to your needs, Jesus here is saying, hey, this is how you pray. Don't pray like the Pharisees who are just trying to like posture and pose for people's uh, pleasure and for their acclaim. And don't pray like the pagans who are, they're praying, they're thinking, they go, keep going on thinking God might hear them if they, if they crack the code for prayer. Pray like this, this is how you pray. He's saying, this is how you pray. And then when he says the second half of this prayer, it's all about share your deep needs with God. Share what's like in your heart, on your mind. Don't keep it from them, share it with them. So it begins like this. Actually, I'm gonna read the whole um, prayer again just so it's fresh in our minds. It begins like this in chapter six, verse nine to 13. This then is how you should pray. Not like the Pharisees, not like the pagans, but like me. This is how I'm telling you to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we'll be focusing on today here is give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you've been around the church for a while, you've been in a, in a small group environment, probably we're at the end 
of the small group environment. If you're new to church, let me just tell you, this sometimes happens. You go into this small group, you know, you go into a room. So the first time I went to a small group, you know, I, it was like a new thing to me. There aren't really things that are similar to this outside of the church environment. I went to a small group. People are just hanging out that you don't really know and you're drinking, you know, punch and talking. And then you all sit down in a circle and you're like, okay, uh, this is new. But at the end of this time, uh, you know, it's share your prayer request. And I know some of you have been in situations like some of you have been the person to share this. I know. Prayer requests come around to you. You're like, well, I just, um, nothing for me personally, uh, but uh, my aunt's cat. My aunt's cat has been more hairballs than usual, which is surprising because the hairball ratio, I mean, it's a lot to begin with, but it's been more. And so we're all just kind of trying to cover that cat in prayer. And some of you are like nervous because you're like, I really, I pray over my cat. And are you saying that's bad? No, that's good. You can do that. It's fine. But what I'm saying though is that in those spaces, there probably is something that you need prayer for and you're not sharing it. Jesus gives us permission to pray. Permission to pray for our actual needs, physical needs, emotional needs, relational needs. The first thing he gives us permission to pray for is just like this, our daily bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Can we just take a second to look at the first two words of that invitation? It says, give us. That sounds entitled. We're coming to a holy God and we're saying, give us, give me. That sounds, on the face of it, it sounds a little entitled. But then wait, wait for it, because that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Jesus is telling us to go to the Father and say, would you give me? Isn't that weird? It, what it does is, I think it reflects the relationship between a child and a parent. When a child approaches the parent, they're, they're not like trying to like convince the parent that they, that they should be the object of, of they, they should receive what they need. They're not saying, hey, could you please, if you're so merciful, parent, maybe, maybe could you please, the, the, the kid just goes up and says, hey, dad, I actually need lunch now. It's been a half an hour past lunch. I'm hungry right now. That's what a kid does. And Jesus is saying that we should approach the father like that. This is my real need, God. This is what I need. Give us. There's this relationship that assumes a level of high connection. This audacity to approach the Father with our real needs and not be bashful about them, not, not, be, not pretend like we're not be, have this false humility, but to approach God with our real needs. Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us what we, this is what we need. And it goes on to say this day, this is important. Some of you are like, we're spending a lot of time on like two words at a time. This is important though. Give us this day. Oftentimes when we think about our needs, we are thinking so much in the future and anxiety ties us up in knots about what could happen in a year, what could happen in six months, what could happen in a week. Jesus says, give us today. Give us this day. Be centered in this moment. What do you need right now? Bring that before, the God, before God. Let tomorrow worry about itself because today has enough stress for us to, to wrestle with. We can give today what we need to God. God, because today all we need is what we need today. 
And when we're focused on and even centered on like the fact that like, God, here is my need today. All of a sudden, what, what happens is, is that anxiety about the future and the what ifs and the what could be's and all that kind of stuff, it starts to drip away as we just bring what we are aware of that we need today to get through the day. Some of us just might begin in the morning with that prayer now, Lord, this is what I need today. You are the one who provides. You are the one who has enough. You are the one who has the resources. This is what I need today. I love how he says, too, he goes on, he says, our daily bread. Throughout the history of the church, there's been this temptation to spiritualize that and to say, he's really referring to spiritual bread. It's like, no, he's just talking about food. (laughs) He's talking about like tacos and hamburgers or some of you are like, amen on the hamburger. (laughs) Give us today food for the day, the three squares. The first century world, it was like the idea of food and God and thankfulness to God because of the food was like way more interconnected than we have today. Today, we just go to Fred Meyer and we're like artisan sourdough or Dave's killer bread or uh, I heard he was in prison one time and he, I don't know if I, what's that? Is he really a killer? I don't know. Maybe I'll get the artisan sourdough. You know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you make bread decisions. <laughs> Maybe it's not that detailed. I don't know. Maybe you make it, I don't know. But like it's not really connected to God as much. It's just connected to our agency. In the first century world, though, it was like intimately connected to worship and reverence and provision. Like because you had you saw the wheat come up, and if there was a, a bad harvest, you know there was a there was there wasn't enough bread, and so and so the idea of praying to the God of who gives every good gift and and would provide for every need was like it was much more of a dynamic relationship for us. We just drive to Fred. Meyer and we buy some bread or I'm sorry if you're a manager at Safeway and Safeway or Met Market or I don't know all the all the places <laughs> I'm driving a car to Met Market though equals high high nump cost but in double and so I don't maybe we're not gonna be able to do that for long I don't know <laughs> just gas and Met Market okay but some of you and I got you talking now um <laughs> One of the things that I think is important for us to hear from Jesus' prayer is that we are people, we are people that need to recognize that God is the giver of every good gift still, right? That he's the one behind your job, the elect, your electricity, the gas in your tank, if the Bible says he's the giver of every good gift, and if what we deserve is not what we've received, but we've received grace when we didn't deserve it, then he's the giver of every good gift, and we should thank him for everything and recognize that he, out of his generosity, we're living a life so that we can not only have enough, but then also be generous. And so we say, God, thank, God, thank you for my daily bread. God, would you continue to provide for my daily bread? Some of us, sometimes, we need, to, we need to become more acutely aware of, of this prayer as an actual need by some people in the world right now where they feel it as a need that we, we can't imagine. Uh, recently, if you've been around Anchor for a while, you know that we've been uh, trying to help some uh, families from the Ukraine leave, and we've been uh, raising up some resources to, to, to leverage for their exit to Poland or, or Slovakia, and it's been cool to see and be in connection, and it's like, hey, they made it, and it's been fun for our staff to, and I got 
some pictures of these families on trains and some videos of them talking. It was in Ukrainian, so I couldn't understand. Um, but for me, it was different from seeing something like on the Washington Post or the New York Times. It was like, oh, these are the fa actual families that we actually helped, that are actually crammed up tight in a train with scared looks on their faces. And let me just tell you, their prayers for daily bread are different. And so sometimes when we pray for our daily bread, we need to be real and ask about our needs, but also be aware that there's people that they're like literally looking for bread. And to but prompt us into being people of compassion and mercy and justice. I would say there's two equal opposite errors when it comes to praying for our needs. The first is doing without praying. It's like, God's too busy for me, why would I pray for that? Um, or maybe I can do it by myself, why would I need God? And then the opposite error is praying without doing. I was talking with somebody uh, recently who felt called to be a missionary. We were on a walk and um, talking and he was, he was sharing about God's calling on his life and it was cool and, and I said, so how are you gonna get there? And he goes, well, I'm just waiting for God to give me the money. And I'm like, well, that's not how it works. If God called you there, then you're, you're partnering with him in this work and so you should be asking people to partner with you so that you can partner with God so you can get to that place where God's calling you. But I think sometimes there's this over-spiritualizing of like, no, I'm just gonna pray, I'm just gonna wait for God to dump $100 in my lap, literally, I'm waiting for that. Sometimes there's miracle stories where that actually happens, but that's not the norm. That's, God calls us to, to do and pray, to pray and to do. Jesus continues this prayer of, of, of needs, of giving us permission to pray. And the next thing he says, we're permission to pray for our relationships. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you notice that? There's this holistic sense of forgiveness that it's like, God, would you forgive me as I'm forgiving others? Isn't that interesting? It's seeing that I'm forgiving, my forgiveness of others is actually seen as normative. There's no trap door. There's no ejection seat out of forgiving others for followers of Jesus. It, the prayer is, hey, there's an assumption that forgiveness is happening to people that you're in relationship. Forgive me, God, as I've forgiven other people. There is that assumption for us. We just need to sit with that and recognize follower of Jesus, we don't get a trap door on forgiveness. Every follower of Jesus is a forgiving person. That does not mean though that we are forgetting of people that do harmful actions towards us. We don't forget that and let down our fences and our boundaries when the trust hasn't been rebuilt and the person hasn't sought the help that they need. Do you get that? So if there's a toxic relationship or if there's a person that's engaged in some type of harmful behavior and, and they say, hey, please, would you forgive me? And we forgive them. That doesn't mean they get the same access of the relationship as before. That's a trust that has to be rebuilt. So it's important for us to make that distinction because the, the, what forgiveness is not is naive rationalizing on one end where we say, well, well, you just don't understand them. It's really my fault. If I would have helped them more, then they wouldn't have done that. So it's actually my fault. That's naive rationalizing. That's not forgiving. That's minimizing real things. And then also on the other end, there's what I would call restrained vengeance. <laughs> That's not forgiveness. Right, restrained vengeance. Just because you didn't launch into a full-on smear campaign and seek the other's harm doesn't mean you've forgiven them. Right? 
Sometimes you're just holding them thoughts hostage behind them clenched teeth. You know, trying to smile. Put that mask back on so you can't see if I'm smiling or not, you know. I love Lewis Meads. He says, vengeance is having a videotape planted in your soul that cannot be turned off. It plays the painful scene over and over again inside your mind. And each time it plays, you feel the clap of pain again. Forgiving turns off the videotape of the pained memory. Forgiving sets you free. I love what Anne Lamont said, where she said, uh, um, not forgiving is like drinking the rat poison and thinking the rat would die. It ends up creating pain and harm within you. Forgiveness is freedom. The ultimate definition of forgiveness comes from Jesus, where Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew 18. He goes, okay, all right, hey, Jesus, you know, all right, seen you enough. I know you can do the things, the power and, and teachings. So like, how many times do I have to forgive my brother and sister? And Jesus is like, 70 times seven. Which you can imagine Peter trying to do the math. He's like, okay, let's carry the one. So I mean, what Jesus is saying there is like, the seven is this number of perfection. So it's like an infinite number of times. You just don't stop forgiving. And then Jesus goes in to tell a story, which like would, would, some of us would like have hated to be Jesus' disciples because like you're asking for concrete details. And he goes, well, let me tell you a story. And you're like, just give it to me straight one time, Jesus. He goes, let me tell you about a servant, you know. There's a servant, and uh, he was really deeply in debt, and he went up to his master, and he's like, I'm not going to be able to pay you back. Uh, could you just forgive all of my debts? And the master said, sure. And so the servant skipped on out of there as quickly as possible. This is right after Jesus is interacting with Peter. He skipped on out of there, dancing away probably, and he goes to see his own servant, so the servant of the servant. And the servant's servant goes up to the servant, I know we're getting a little confused here, and says, hey, I'm deeply in debt. You know I'm not going to be able to pay you back. Could you forgive my debts? And the servant says to his servant, no way. Yeah, right. You better get on some type of payment plan because interest is coming at you. That's my translation. Jesus tells that story because he wants us in Peter to hear the weirdness of being the recipient of forgiveness without giving forgiveness to others. He wants us to be aware that, that we have been so forgiven by God, it is, it is remarkable that we would not offer it to others. It is ridiculous, it is inconsistent, it is hypocritical, it is beyond paradox that we would not forgive others while we have been so richly forgiven ourselves. Again, forgiveness is not forgetting. It doesn't mean that you, you just let the person have the same access to you as you did before after they've done something harmful. There's a journey towards building uh, trust and we cannot minimize that. But forgiving is about your freedom. It is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is the first step. And it really is about the one who gives its freedom. I would say in my own experience, it's a journey, not a singular act. Especially the sizable things that we need to offer forgiveness to others for, the, the larger it is, the longer the journey. There's been situations in my life where I've thought I've totally forgiven someone, 
And then something happens, a memory, a thought, something in the newsfeed, and all of a sudden I'm back there at the beginning again. It's not the same beginning, but I'm feeling those, those same emotions. Here's how you assess if you're on the path of forgiveness, on the journey of forgiveness. Are you growing in compassion for the person that wronged you? Are you seeing them as a human? Or are you minimizing their humanity? Do you have compassion for them? Or do you have more compassion than you did? That's a picture of growing, and I, again, not a simple thing. Jesus goes on, he talks about another need we have, a permission to pray for our spiritual life. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some translations say from evil. Uh, you know, it's interesting, for those of us who are familiar with the Gospels, which is like the, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, Jesus has just recently, at this point, uh, been in the wilderness with Satan being tempted. So it's almost as if, he's, as he's saying this, uh, to, hey, this is how you pray, you know, he's saying like, hey, I've just been, I've just been led into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. You can't handle it. Stay away from that place. Get away. You don't want to go there. Jesus has personally faced this and tells his disciples to steer clear of what the world would celebrate as good sometimes. It's destructive. We don't know culturally, if, we don't know culturally what to say, uh, what to, how to understand temptation right now. We like use it as a branding campaign. Temptation, chocolate. Right? We have it like, a, it's a dessert name at a, at a restaurant. Oh, you want the temptation? Right? We don't know what to do with it. Here's what temptation is from a biblical perspective. Temptation is like a funhouse mirror. Except with a funhouse mirror, when you go in there, like it makes you look like less desirable. You know? You're like, whoa, my head's like three times the size. Uh, but it distorts realities. So it is, you see something is not as, as for what it isn't. Temptation distorts reality. But rather than the funhouse mirror makes it look weirder and less desirable and makes it look more appealing so that you lean in towards it and you see it as the, path, the good path or the desirable path and you don't see what's behind this mirror is really just destruction. I think in a world that doesn't know what to do with temptation and sees it as normal and who cares, give into it, we need to recognize that temptation leaves trauma in its wake that we aren't isolated individuals and our choices only affect us and so we can do whatever we want because come on, we're just adults here anyways, right? No, that's not the way that we're wired or how it works. When we make a decision, it ripples out to affect other people and even, even if it didn't affect other people, it would still affect us and don't we want flourishing? Don't we want shalom? Don't we want to see joy increase and, and pain decrease even just for our very selves? Then we are to be not moving towards temptation. We are to pray like as Jesus said, this is my need to be steered away from temptation, to be steered away from the lie that would distort reality to make something that is really death look desirable. 
Um, I think it's interesting, well, uh, culturally and in advertising, we don't know what to do with temptation. Sometimes there's stories in our community, or stories that show up that really illustrate it well. Like, for instance, some of us are aware of a TV show um, called Breaking Bad. Anybody ever heard of that television show? Yeah, somebody has, we got some mild levels of excitement. We're like, can I cheer for Breaking Bad in church? Another similar Ozarks. All right, so, all right, okay, we're seeing, right, we're taking note of who said that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> what I love about these two shows, while not everything, but what I love about them is they present things for as they are. It presents people in a situation where they, uh, they have an option to take advantage of an opportunity, and they do, but it ends up leading to their own demise. It doesn't celebrate temptation as this grand thing to be pursued at no cost, but it points to temptation as the real painful destructive capacities that it possesses. It's interesting how sometimes art and literature still speak to something clearly when culturally we have no capacity to understand the real potential and pain that something like temptation can cause. Henry Nouwen, perhaps one of the greatest spiritual writers in the last hundred years, talked about uh, what I would say is profound. He says, he calls the greatest temptation is what he calls self-rejection. Now, in the church, we talk a lot about self-denial, and that is a good thing to deny our sinful nature. Uh, But what Nouwen is talking about is that good God-created part of you. The part of you that God looks at and says, you are my kid, and I love you so much. He says, the greatest temptation is to reject the self that is loved by God. Because when we do that, we turn off, our ability, turn off our ability to hear the voice of the Father that says, you are my beloved. And when we don't hear the voice of the Father that says, you are my beloved, we seek to fill that vacancy and that void with a whole bunch of other stuff. When we don't walk every day knowing that we are the objects of of untold riches and the objects of untold love by a father who loves us more than we could ever imagine, when we don't walk with that awareness daily in our life, we will seek to fill that vacancy with a whole host of other things. That's where the potential of sex, temptations of sex and power over others at the expense of others, drink to the point of addiction and dependence, all those things start to happen when we are not walking with the keen, deep awareness that we are the objects of love. That the voice of the Father says, you are my beloved. Let me just tell you, you know, the beginning and the band can come up right now. The beginning of the Gospels, and we're going to look at this a little bit later, Jesus um, Later in the series, Jesus is baptized, and he hears, "You are my father, whom I or, sorry, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased." A voice of of identity, son. A voice of uh, affection, love, and delight. And he he hears those words before Jesus before he does anything of significance. Jesus doesn't do any miracles. He doesn't do, but he hears those words before that. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because we're made in the image of God, and what Jesus has done on the cross, those same words apply to us. So before you start your day, the voice of the Father says, you are my kid, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. You might try to fight that off and say, but I haven't done anything yet. And, and the Father would say, you are my kid, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Don't try to fight it off. Don't try to fight my love off. Just, just be open-handed and receive what I have for you. 
Don't reject yourself, the self that is loved by God, but just but to be excited that you are the recipient of love. When we have that on our mind, when we have that awareness that you, 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 you are the object of more love than you can imagine. And that we are given that by a holy God. That is a beauty that is incomparable to anything that the world would present as desirable. When we hold that picture as the most pressing and important picture in our mind, then we won't stumble into the things that the world would try to contort into something to be appealing to us because we don't need that need filled. There, where there is a, was a vacancy, there is a reservoir. That's why we do communion every week. Because in communion, you hear these words, Christ's body given for you. Christ's blood shed for you. I love that word, you. You come forward and you see someone looking at you and you hear their voice say something true, directed directly at you. Think about all the things potential temptations in your life, all the, all the needs you have. And when you hear those words, all those anxieties start to melt down. Christ's body given for you. Christ's blood shed for you. Hey, if you have not said yes to being a follower of Jesus yet, you are invited into that today. Why would you miss out on that love? The world, the love that the world wants but doesn't know. Why would you miss out on that love? You can say yes today. Come forward for your communion, maybe as the first time. Tell somebody that you're here with, or if you're here by yourself, you know, go to the prayer stations and just receive prayer. Today can be the day where you walk in freedom and experience salvation. Today can be that day. For some of us, we have needs that are in our mind. Maybe it's a need and a relationship need. We're stuck in this cul-de-sac of bitterness and we need the freedom from that cul-de-sac and forgiveness. You might go to the prayer station and say, hey, I need prayer for this. Would you help me? God, would you help me? Would you pray with me? Some of us, we're struggling, but maybe we don't know how to pay for certain things in our life. We're caught. We, we don't know how to pay the power bill, our daily bread. We need, we're asking, God, would you pray for Go to the prayer stations. Ask for prayer. We want those as spaces where you can share your real needs to God and to others so that community develops and God receives and answers our prayers. This is a space where that can happen. Let me pray over us as we step into this next song and communion. This is a place where the Spirit of God wants to work. So I just pray, Spirit of the living God, would you come in this place? Would you come in this place? There's people that are carrying cynicism. Would you melt that away? Would you melt that away? This hard heart, would you push that away so that there's real, living, beating heart where there was a hard heart? For their real needs, I pray that for the real needs of like, how can I pay for things that people are wrestling with that, I pray that they would have the courage to raise their hands so that we can help, so that you can meet the needs. We pray for freedom from the cul-de-sac of bitterness and the freedom of forgiveness. We pray for that in this space today. Spirit of the living God, you are the one that can do that. Bring your power, bring your power. You know what we need. Help us to give voice to that need before you.